Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast with Cincinnati host Stephen Brittingham. Experience meaningful and in-depth interviews with Hollywood's most interesting people. Enjoy the show. You can receive all the latest episodes of Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham delivered to your favorite listening device by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever happens to be your favorite podcast listening service. Don't miss out. Tune in. The Catherine Falk Organization offers a support center, an official online resource center, and additional information regarding elder abuse. For more information, please visit CatherineFalkOrganization.org. Well, sir, I want to thank you very much for your time. Anytime, Lieutenant. Right. Yeah, I don't want to forget my cigar. Good day. Oh, listen, just one more thing. Um, I know you don't agree, but at least I've convinced my superiors that Jennifer Wells was murdered was not a suicide. And they've officially assigned me to the case. That's my specialty, you know. Homicide. Hi, this is your host, actor and writer Stephen Brittingham. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond. As host, my most important goals are to provide you, the listeners, with meaningful and in-depth interviews. Those efforts continue today with an extra special guest who is here to share her personal and heartfelt story and her courageous fight to be a voice for those who often are unable to speak for themselves. Our elderly parents who may be suffering from Alzheimer's, strokes, or other debilitating health conditions. Imagine, though, as an adult child, you were kept from seeing your ailing parent. No visits, no updates on their health care or treatment, and not even being contacted to be informed about the passing of a parent. Sounds completely cold and unacceptable, doesn't it? most certainly does. My guest today is Catherine Falk, and she experienced isolation from her father during his final days. He was a man millions of television viewers both loved and cherished, the late and great Peter Falk, who portrayed Columbo. And Peter's contributions to the industry in Hollywood are remarkable and unforgettable. Catherine has become a crusader for others who are prohibited from, uh, in most cases, perhaps a step-parent from seeing their elderly parents during an illness, not only in the state of California, but across the country. As a result, the Catherine Falk Organization has been founded. Regarding the Peter Falk Bill, here is a small portion from the official website, CatherineFalkOrganization.org, and I quote, Catherine Falk was inspired to create the Peter Falk Bill through her own personal suffering as she was denied contact with her ailing father during his last days. Unquote. I could not describe her experience any better myself. Catherine Falk, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Most welcome. Such a, a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for joining me. Um, 
you know, I'll tell you what, my heart goes out to you after all that I learned about your ordeal with your uh, incredible mm-hmm. father, uh, Peter Falk. And you know what, Catherine, you are the best person to describe so much of what I uh, mentioned uh, during the introduction. But, you know, I thought I would start uh, kind of near the beginning just to kind of help put all of this in perspective. And sure. uh, your parents uh, divorced when you were at a very young age. Correct. Yeah, I was uh, about five or six, I'd say. Now, um, despite that, though, from what I understand, uh, you and your father were very close over the years. Uh, we were close. We also had some ups and downs, you know, like every family kind of, you know, no family is perfect. And my dad and I definitely had our fair share of arguments. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, to, you know, um, throughout my childhood and my adolescence and my teenage years, uh, we were, yeah, we were really close, very close. Uh, he uh, was in- involved in my activities and my life and you know, he, he was on, you know, all, away a lot shooting films and traveling. But when he traveled, he always sent me postcards from uh, around the world. I still have the postcards. Oh, nice. He, called, he was gone. Yeah, I still have all, all the postcards. And when I go back and look at them, it brings back a lot of memories. But And then when I was in college, we had a falling out. Uh, we didn't speak for um, several years. And then we patched it up, you know, after I came out of college. But so, you know, it's a typical family dynamic. Sure, it's not going to be perfect, like you were saying. Uh, I mean, most families experience up and downs, of course. So, uh, uh, obviously, that is, um, you know, actually to be expected. And uh, it sounds like, though, that you obviously cared for each other very much. Uh, Those postcards, what a wonderful story. Um, Well, I wanted to ask you, I was very curious. Did you ever uh, witness your dad memorizing his lines or preparing for his work, maybe while he was at home? I'm just, I was thinking about that uh, earlier today. Uh, you know, um, to be honest with you, I mean, the only time, I mean, this is kind of funny, but the only time I saw his scripts were, you know, as like floor mats in his car and the Mercedes, he had a beat up old Mercedes. And my dad was very disrespectful to his scripts and they used to be all over the floor <laughs> and we used to step on them and be really, you know... So, but no, so when I was, you know, I, when I was little, my parents divorced. So um, after my, my dad moved out, then seeing my dad really encompass like being on the go and being engaged with him and spending time with him. So, he, I mean, not really. I mean, the only time I did see him actually to actually to rewind time a little bit, um, when my dad used to take me to the set. Obviously, he had the script in his hand, and uh, he would put it down. He'd sit in his chair, and I'd watch him shoot and stuff. But when we would um, spend time together going places, never did I see him read a script, no. And as far as Columbo goes, I wanted to ask you, did he ever share anything with you, maybe what he liked about portraying that character? I think he liked... <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things he told me about. <laughs> Yeah, I think he what he loved a lot was just that people underestimated him and that he, it's, it was always that he, you know, the gotcha at the end and uh, that people underestimated his capacity and uh, thought he was so befuddled and he thought he just got a kick out. He just would get a kick out of it, you know, that, uh, but, you know, <laughs> with my dad, which was really interesting, and I know I say this a lot, but I'll say it again. My dad was Columbo long before Columbo found him, and that's the remarkable um, kind of the uh, the symphony that was created between my dad and Columbo was that 
you know, my, as my mom always said in college, when they met in college, that somehow my dad was just, he was always Columbo. Like, that was his, per, that was his personality. So I when see. Bing Crosby, when Bing Crosby um, denied, it was um, uh, rejected the audition because he was too busy playing golf, my dad stepped in and called and, you know, asked them to let him read for the part. And they were just like, you know, who's this guy? And, you know guy with one eye what are we going to do with this guy and uh my dad you know knocked it out of the park and i think the reason why he knocked it out of the park was because he was colombo like i mean there was my dad if you knew his personality and you knew him personally <laughs> he was just colombo 24 7 and it drove us crazy like i mean i look back now on it and i laugh about it but when i was a kid it, it drove me nuts it drove me nuts. And it wasn't like he was Columbo and then he decided to do the shtick at home. It wasn't like that. It was just his personality. You know, he'd always ask me, he would, it, what was fascinating about my dad was he would ask me a question a million different ways. And he knew already, he always knew the answer to my, his questions, but he wanted to like trip me up or see if I would confess to something I didn't do. Or, I mean, like he had ways of getting a confession out of you just to shut him up and you didn't do anything wrong, but you're just like, God, <laughs> these questions are not going to end. You know, they're just not going to stop. And they, and then he would, he would trick you. He would trip you a little bit because his questions would change. And the one question would change so many different ways that you would start to get confused yourself. You know, I, I can't even explain it. It was so bizarre. Well, thank but, you um, for sharing all of that. That, that is just so much fun to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do have a oh, another question before we get to the topic that I described uh, during the introduction, because you are the best person to ask, Catherine, as far as I'm concerned. And I really appreciate this because it gives me an opportunity to ask such a question. Um, mm -hmm. And that is, you know, uh, what did your dad like to do in his downtime? So let's say he wasn't at the studio or maybe he didn't even have to go the next day. I mean, do you recall what he liked to do to unwind? What like what was fun yeah. for Peter Falk? Yeah. So, so yeah, no, that's that's an easy answer. So my dad was kind of a solitary, autonomous person, and he really liked um, being alone a lot. He uh, so he seeked a lot of pleasure in his charcoal uh, drawings. He was always in the studio drawing, and if he wasn't in the studio drawing, then he was obviously um, he was a member to the Riviera Golf Club, and uh, he had a bunch of buddies that he used to golf with on Saturdays and Sundays at the Riviera. And so those were his two passions. You know, my dad loved to play golf and he loved to draw. Um, but he, he just liked to be on his own a lot. I think he liked a lot of downtime. You know, he was a, a really a solitary person. Very interesting. I appreciate you sharing all of that. Thank you so much. And, well, if we fast forward many years... Uh, to when your father was starting to have some health issues. Um, what comes to mind uh, as far as when you noticed that he started to, you know, that he was really starting to have a lot of health issues? Well, you know, it, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a complex question with a lot of layers to it. But um, so, so my dad, you know, when I was a teenager, um, I remember my dad telling me that he was terrified of losing his mind that his father had died of Alzheimer's at a very young age. And my father used to say to me, there's nothing worse than losing your mind. And there's nothing, there's no point in living when you don't have your mind. And my dad, because he lived inside of his head and because everything about his creativity encompassed his cognitive capacity to be able to execute reading the lines for a script and drawing and doing all those things, 
that's all he cared about. And so he became um, deeply concerned with following in the same footsteps as his own father. So, uh, but as a teenager, and that was also the shtick in Colombo, right? That became people, people, uh, there was a mixture with my dad. He appeared to be befuddled, which worked, but there was also an element of his befuddledness that was actually true to form because he was beginning you know, he uh, he had early onset Alzheimer's. I knew it. I saw it. I, I uh, you know, he, he just couldn't remember certain things. He was beginning to lose, you know, couldn't remember where he parked his car. He forgot where his keys were. Um, he just was beginning to get agitated and irritable, uh, feeling a, a, a loss of control. And it was slow and it was gradual. And it was like during my college years um, in my 20s, I, I remember it vividly. But he was still, you know, engaging and um, aware and, you know, interactive. And he still did Columbo's. But as time went on, I would say, like, uh, when I had my son in 2000, 1999, 2000, when I got married and had my son, I saw a a decline. And uh, then... um, and then my sister and I, in 2008, 2008, we had plans to go see my father for Father's Day. And I remember talking to my dad, you know, before Father's Day. And he's like, oh, I'm going to go in for hip surgery. My hips are really hurting me. And I'm just going to have a hip replacement. And I, um, and I knew that the stepmother was listening to our phone calls. Because back when we were five and six years of age, she loved to, like, you know, listen to our calls and scream and yell at my father for being on the phone too long with us. I was talking to my father. I said, you know, um, when you go in under for anesthesia, anesthesia can really impact the brain, especially when you have dementia and Alzheimer's. I'm really concerned. I mean, are you sure that you want to do this? You've always been so terrified of losing your mind. And he's like, I'm just in so much pain when I walk. And the doctor said it was going to be okay. But I I just knew it wouldn't be. (laughs) I just knew. I knew just all the research I had done that it would accelerate, uh, you know, his capacity, his, you know, his mental capacity. And so anyway, so then in 2008, um, we had plans, my sister and I had plans to go out to dinner for Father's Day. So let's just say Father's Day was on a Sunday. Uh, My sister and I were speaking to my father the previous Wednesday. And so he had told us that his hip surgery was a couple days after Father's Day. So we're like, perfect, we'll see you for Father's Day, and then you'll go in for surgery. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> Father's Day came and went, and we didn't hear from him. And I mean, there was no sign of my dad, like just completely disappeared. <clears throat> so then I, my, I, I knew something was wrong. So then I, my sister went to the hospital on the day that he was scheduled to do the surgery, and the doctors had told my sister that my father had been checked out of the hospital on Father's Day. So somebody, and God only knows who that was, somebody uh, moved up his surgery date for Father's Day. <laughs> Why that was, God only knows. But anyway, so he checked out. He's home. My sister leaves the hospital, comes home, and says he's, he's gone. He's in and out. So then I knew right away what was happening. I knew that the isolation was going to begin. Something was going to go down. So then I began to call my father's private line at the house because we always communicated with my dad on his private line in his studio to kind of keep us separate from his second wife. And so I called for like, I'd say a month straight every single day I would call and I would leave a message and I would document it. I would tape record it to have evidence that I was calling and calling. And then um, after 30 days, the, 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 his second wife 
picked up the phone and in a nasty tone said to me, your father doesn't ever want to speak to you again. He doesn't love you. Don't ever call here again. He's got nothing more to say to you. And I, and I was, I think my sister was around me at the time that that happened. I'm not, I'm not sure. But so then I knew that I was in trouble. I mean, I knew something that just didn't make any sense to me. It just didn't make sense. So then I had a friend of mine who was an attorney and uh, I talked to my mom and my sister and I'm like, I don't know what to do. And so I talked to a friend of mine who was an attorney. Uh, and again, I'm a deer in the headlights. I'm just wanting to see my dad. I don't care about anything else. I don't even know how, what avenue to take at that point. So I talked to an attorney friend of mine who happened to work in the probate courts, who I knew because we were having family issues, obviously, with my dad being isolated. And he said, um, the only way you'll ever get in to see your father is if you file for a conservatorship. And I, and I didn't even know what that was at all. And he said, you have to file for conservatorship and we have to go to court and we have to petition the court to give you visitation rights under that umbrella. And I said, I don't want a conservatorship. I just want to get to my dad. And he said, well, this is the only way to get in to see the judge. So I, I agreed to do that. And we filed for conservatorship in L.A. County courts. And um, there's two parts to conservatorship. There's a part that you, you file for conservatorship over the person and you file conservatorship over the estate. And I said, I, I don't want to take conservatorship over the estate. That's just ridiculous. So when we got into court, I made my attorney um, in front of the judge withdraw the petition for the estate because I didn't want the appearances that I was going after his money at all. So I made him withdraw that in front of the judge. And then I went before the judge and we stood up and we said, we're in here because we want, I want to see my dad. And she said, I've never had an adult child come into court and, and only want that. And I said, just give conservatorship to the stepmother uh, just let me in. Just let me see my father because something's wrong. And then my stepmother, of course, was very bitter and angry. And, oh, he doesn't want to see her. He doesn't love her. They're estranged from each other. She's just trying to get my money. I mean, it was the whole drama. So I had to go through six months while my dad is deteriorating somewhere. I went through six months of trial and I $100,000 of my own money to, to convince the judge that, yes, I did have a relationship, and, and here are, is Exhibit A, Exhibit B, and it was outrageous. It was so just humiliating and disgusting, but I had to get up on the stand. I had to produce evidence, <clears throat> and then I had to listen to my dad's wife get up on the stand and spew out a lot of crap about me, uh, you know, oh, you know, he, didn't, he never loved her, he, you know, and it was just a lot of drama, and uh, I just turned... Uh, you know, finally, the judge said, I'm just going to give her visitation rights. I, this is ridiculous. I, I don't even, and she stopped the trial while my, my dad's wife was on the stand. And by the way, on a separate note, I'm just going to add this in there. She had a neurologist get on the stand that was supposed to testify on her behalf. Uh, to, to, <laughs> to, to, to talk about capacity with my dad. And, uh, the neurologist got up on the stand and ended up just blasting her. And it was unbelievable. The neurologist basically admitted under oath that my father in 2005 was beginning to lose capacity and that my dad went to this neurologist and said that he was under undue influence by his wife to change his entire estate, which was $50 million, to take all of the money that he had under the Peter Falk Trust and put it in her name. So that's 2005. And I knew already that my father had been arrested in 2005 on my birthday for spousal abuse because 
he had told me that he didn't touch her, that he it was, they had had an argument and then the Beverly Hills cops came, they took him to jail, his business manager bailed him out. It's not my birthday, right? So, and he oh was arguing, beginning, yeah, so my dad was really losing his mind. And, and you know, it, when you know about Alzheimer's patients, they, you know, they don't get violent, but they get frustrated. And, and when you push and push and push, my dad never touched us, never hit us. Never, never was abusive to my sister and I, never was abusive to my mother, never. And so I just, I, and then, of course, the Beverly Hills cops didn't press charges and they let him go. And, you know, it, it, yeah, that's a whole nother radio show. But um, so that, so then the neurologist basically admitted under oath that my dad had admitted that he felt pressure. And then literally three months after he was arrested, literally three months after he was arrested, she convinced my father to change the trust in her name. So then all of the money shifted, most of the money shifted for her. And it was just a calculated move. And that was in 2005. And all of this happened within a six-month period, from my birthday in August to December of their anniversary. She got everything switched, and the neurologist admitted that under oath. So it was just ironic that that happened during our court trial that we have documents of, I mean, his testimony of. But the judge basically just said, I'll give you visitation rights and I'll let you get in to see him. And of course, it was like supervised visitation. And I mean, Jesus, it felt like armed guards. And I didn't care. I just didn't care. I just wanted to see him. And uh, so I did. I got in to see my dad. And uh, it, he was already gone at that point, which I knew when I saw him, I just, he was just gone. I mean, he was gone. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he was able to somewhat recognize me a little bit, and I did a lot of thing, research about it, and I played him a lot of music that I knew he would recognize and songs that he loved, and uh, he was really happy about that, but I got in too late. So that really upset me a lot. Um, but, you know, it, you know those are, that's in the past. But, but, so, but the important part of this um, dialogue is to tell you that when I was in trial I, back in 2009, and 2010, I turned to my attorney then and asked him to draft a Peter Falk bill uh, because I thought, well, there must be a way to streamline this so that you can have a piece of legislation that circumvents having to go and file for conservatorship. There should be a petition that adult children should be able to go in front of the judge when they're being wrongly isolated and just navigate through this differently. Um, and so he drafted what was then the Peter Falk bill, which basically outlines a proposal of my wish list of what I saw as a perfect piece of legislation that would allow the courts to grant if there, if you could prove that there's willful isolation. And, but it was again, a real rough draft and whatnot. And that was back. And so I received that draft in 2011 and then in 2011, I didn't really know where to go, and I kind of hit a bunch of walls trying to contact legislators because I was a little bit of a deer in the headlights with it all. So it went nowhere pretty quickly. And then um, in 2013, um, I had um, uh, uh, my attorney had called me and said, you know, the the, um, the Casey Kasem is going, his kids are going through the same thing you are, and can you please try to... Uh, contact uh, one of the kids, you know, one of the kids and refer them to me. I'm not allowed to promote myself and blah, blah. So I got on Facebook and I tootled around on Facebook. And then I found uh, Carrie Kasem and her sister and I made contact with them and they said they already had a lawyer and I told them about my bill. And that's when they said, well, we have a stepfather who's a lobbyist. If we could get that bill 
through in California. That was pretty much it. And then uh, a couple months later, Carrie Kasem had contacted me and said, hey, I'm having this meeting. I want to develop this organization. And, you know, I thought about maybe doing a bill that, you know, like what you were talking about. You want to be partners on an organization and then have an organization, you know, in both of our names to carry on the legacy of my father. Yeah, that's fine. So, so briefly, we, we partnered. I left the bill in her hands in California. My attorney stayed on in that organization. What was Kasem Falk then was changed to, um, to, Kasem, to, to her organization, Kasem Cares. And so then I told my attorney that was staying on, I said, I'm going to take a version of this bill and take it to New York where my father was, um, where we're all from New York City, and uh, try to get it picked up in New York since she's working on it in California. So then I took it to Syracuse, where we all went to college, and I got a sponsor out of Syracuse, and he took it immediately. And then I, um, and then I w- was contacted by the biggest organization in the United States for elder abuse and for, gar- for guardianship abuse. They contacted me, their board members, and they said, um, we really want to talk to you. Your bill is really flawed. Uh, we want to explain why your bill is flawed, the one that you have sitting in New York and the one that's trying to get through in California. And these are seasoned legislative writers. Like, they've written bills. They've been in this field forever. And they said, your bill actually perpetuates your, – your bill creates more conservatorships. Your bill – your bill challenges power of attorney, which then ignites a guardianship, which then further restricts and isolates the very person you're trying to protect. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, that went over my head. And I was like – still a deer in the headlights and they're like all trying to explain to me you have to understand how legislation works and how this whole process works and so i do understand it and i and it took me a while and i did a lot of research and i realized and so i called new york and i said i need you to withdraw the bill and give me some time to rewrite this with some legislative writers and some attorneys and start from scratch and so they pulled the bill and took it out and withdrew it and then um I teamed up with this organization, and I then went into Tennessee where Glenn Campbell's case was, and I got a sponsor out of Tennessee, and then Tennessee's uh, big senator in Tennessee said, you know what, I'm going to let you, Catherine, I'm going to let you run with a bill. You're going to write it. You can you write it any way you want, and I will get it through. And so we immediately, like, we hustled, and we drafted a bill with my, or- my partnered organization, and we just created the most amazing bill. And it was a bill that was for, um, for people like my dad, they're already in guardianships that are being isolated as opposed to writing a bill, challenging somebody who's in power of attorney. So in other words, to, to, to make it really simple, my father gave power of attorney to my stepmother. When somebody has durable power of attorney, they have very limited powers. They tend to overuse their powers and they tend to exploit their powers, but by law, they have less rights and less power. So when you begin to challenge a family member, when you begin to challenge a family member's power of attorney, then the probate court throws up their hands and they say, we're just going to put them into a full-blown guardianship. And then by putting them into a full-blown guardianship, then the courts and all the vultures come out, all the you know, attorneys come out, they start draining down the estate. You can literally take my dad, put him in a guardianship or conservatorship by a court-appointed guardian. Like that judge, when I went to court with my stepmother, that judge could have said, hey, both of you guys, I'm not getting in the middle between you and this wife, you know, like this is just too much for me. So I'm going to appoint a court-appointed guardian, which is a complete stranger. 
and then they then they're basically working for the courts. And then they can take my dad, put him in a nursing home. They, people don't realize that um, court-appointed guardians or state-run guardians can literally seize all assets, uh, sell houses, sell cars. I was one of the lucky ones that didn't have that happen because I just relinquished it to my stepmother. But um, we've got thousands and thousands of cases all over the country where people just, you know, they don't understand the pitfalls of guardianship and how it all works. And so family members love to fight for power of attorney thinking that they're doing the right thing. And then they, then they call us later going, Oh my God, we're in probate court and the judge is taking all of our rights and their rights. And now we've got a court appointed guardian. And my dad's been taken to a nursing home and the houses are sold and they run all of our bank accounts and we're not able to see our father. Like it just, it's like literally standing in quicksand. So there's nothing good about probate court. I tell people that like the only way a probate judge has jurisdiction over your over your loved one is to appoint a conservatorship. That's the slippery slope that nobody seems to understand. That's not directly advocating in guardianship, right? So when you write legislation, you can actually create more harm than good. I mean, just the difference between shall and may and a piece of legislation makes, it's just a huge difference. But anyway, I could go on for hours and I know I'm just rambling right now, but anyway. No, you, you are most definitely not rambling. Uh, I was listening to every word. Uh, very, very important. And, um, you know, I, 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 you know what I want to say right away, uh, to you, Catherine, is that, you know, all of this, I mean, just all of this, just because uh, an individual wanted to keep you from seeing your dad, it it just um, it's just not yeah. right or acceptable, and it should be every state across the country. An adult child, unless, like you mentioned, unless there's some sort of circumstance, right, of right. violence Absolutely. or or something, Absolutely. you know, that's different. You know, you don't get a free pass if you've harmed your parent or something like that. But no, and I said that to the judge. If my dad did not want to see me. I would not be standing here. There's no reason why I have the authority to stand here if my dad made it very clear that I was a danger to him or he didn't want to see me. But I have pictures of my dad with my son just, you know, like months ago before this all happened. Like, and I showed, you know, stuff, emails and phone calls and pictures. And I'm like, come on, you know, like, this is outrageous. Like my, yes. my stepmother is defining my father's love for me. Like, I mean, what people don't understand is that, when you have parents, you never, ever think as a child that you are going to be faced with the possibility that any human being is going to keep you from your parent and vice versa. Like, I have children. God help anybody who keeps me from my kids. And God help, I mean, God help anybody that does that. But it's a strong possibility. Or let's say I have two boys. Let's say one of my boys decides to get vindictive and decide to try to pull power of attorney away from my other son. Well, they're just doing me a disservice because the courts are going to step in and say, hey, wait a minute, you two boys, you can't work this out? Then we're just going to take power away from both of you guys. And I've told both my boys that, like, don't mess with our paperwork. Just do what we say, because otherwise we're going to end up in worse situation. So you have to... You have to prepare families for the outcome of that. When you drag your problems, your personal problems, into a court, everybody thinks that if you bring your problems into court, that the court has your best interest and that they're going to solve your problems. And I can tell you nine times out of ten, and this is I'm saying this by experience because we have thousands of cases that we get every month, 
literally. And none of them, you would just, your skin would crawl if you, if I showed you these cases, you would not believe it. Mm. And so I try to educate people. And if you can educate people and, and knowledge is power to, to, to know what to do in advance, to do all of the things you can possibly do to avoid these pitfalls, then that's our advocacy work, right? It's less about legislation and it's just more about keeping people informed. But the problem is by the time we get our cases, they're already six feet under. So we get the calls when, oh, my gosh, my mother's been taken to a nursing home and our $2 million house has just been sold and the Guardian has sold the cars. And, and I'm like, we're not lawyers. We can't step in. And you know what I mean? So it's just it's an unfortunate thing because people don't come to us in the beginning and say, this is where we're they do sometimes. Sometimes I get phone calls from siblings that are fighting. And I, I say, go to mediation. The minute you step into probate court, you're going to make matters worse. I'm begging you to mediate this. Go to your sibling and, and just ask for mediation, you know? There's got to be an amicable way of doing this. But see, my father's wife was re- refused, just refused to mediate at all, refused to sit down at the table and come up with, you know, I begged her. Like, you know, can we work this out in mediation? Can we, I just want to see him. No, we're going to trial. We're just going to trial. <laughs> so I didn't have that luxury, you know? Well, Catherine, um, when you finally did get to visit with your dad after, after so many obstacles and unfortunately valuable, precious time, especially with the condition that he had, uh, were you told that there was a time limit or were you allowed to visit him for the entire day, for example? Oh, no, no. They put me on a time limit. They were ridiculous. They had me like, you know, no, like a couple hours. And it was like, you know, once a month or something. It was just outrageous, outrageous. It was like, I mean, truthfully, to be blunt, it was like going to a prison and visiting an inmate behind a glass window. I mean, that's, you know, that's that's how it felt. Like I was visiting somebody who was incarcerated, right? <laughs> like, you know, I mean, people. It, it sounds like it, doesn't it? I have to ask you this because I've, I, I've, I just thought of this. You know, did you ever, like, feel tempted to just go, you know what, screw it. I'm going to just walk into, you know, if I could find out where he is, I'm just going to walk in. Or if you knew right where your dad was, I mean, did you ever think about just walking in and let the consequences be because, you know, he's your dad and you want to see him? But see, I couldn't because my dad was uh, unable to move. He was in a wheelchair and he didn't speak. And so he was, and then he had 24 hour care that was supervising him and he was lost in the guest house. So my dad had a big house in, on Roxbury in Beverly Hills and they basically had him confined into the guest house. So if I trespassed on that property, she'd have me arrested. Yeah, there's <laughs> so the problem. So you couldn't do that yeah. even if you wanted to. No, like if my dad had been at work or was driving to work or was whatever, of course, and of course I would do that. But my dad was bound by a wheelchair. And uh, y- y- how ironic is that, right? So, so my dad was in for hip surgery, comes out a vegetable and bound by a wheelchair and cannot walk. So here he is, he comes out of hip surgery and he's in a wheelchair. <laughs> so he never walked after his surgery and he lost his mind. So it was a very unfortunate situation, you know. Very unfortunate. So I, but I didn't understand the gravity. I, I didn't know what I was walking into. I just had a suspicion that by the time I got to him, it was going to be bad. But when I saw him, I was devastated. I was so devastated. I did not anticipate the level of, um, of his demise. Like I just, I didn't see that coming. I get that blew me away that he was just 
nonverbal and, uh, you know, he made eye contact with me and he was happy. And, you know, the, the one thing that was fascinating about my dad, um, well, it, it came full circle for me because when I was younger, my father was a happy-go-lucky, goofy, irreverent, um, wonderful spirit to be around and super easygoing and, Anyway, always smiling and laughing. And so then as he aged, he became irritable and agitated and angry and confused and frustrated. And so I saw that part of my dad. And then when I got in to see him to say goodbye to him, he had returned to the dad I knew as a child. And so we had come full circle together. And I was able to look at him and see him the way I'd seen him as a child. Uh, just He sat in the wheelchair, but there was a contentment and a sweetness and a just a gentleness to my father that I had remembered as a child. So, you know, I don't know, but it was hard. It was hard for him not to, not to have him speak to me. You know, he didn't say much, you know, he just nodded his head and he smiled and, you know, I played music and stuff. So, and you, you know, went that's through so thing. much. You sure? Yeah, did. it was, yeah, it was pretty bad. <laughs> And, and, you, and you know, Catherine, I, I, I'm also thinking about, uh, let's kind of uh, shift the focus to you for a moment. Uh, I know we're, we're focusing on your dad, but I mean, all that stress, anxiety, worry, and I'm sure moments of, of, of anger, I, I, I would imagine, uh, for, that you're even going through this. I mean, that has to wear a person down. I mean, did, did you go through uh, uh, moments where you're, you, know, you felt like your health was declining yourself? Like, I mean, were you having trouble getting through your days? I, you know, I, 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 no, because I was in fight mode and I was, it, when I, I go into like, when I'm in fight mode and I'm in this mode of like, I need to get this accomplished, it didn't hit me. It didn't hit me until I saw him. And then all of the emotions and all of the, you know, tears and everything just, I just, I just unraveled. Like it just, I just sure. broke down. Like after seeing, like physically seeing him and all the work I'd done to get into trial and then finally seeing him, I think that that's when I just, I crumbled. Like I just fell apart. And then it was like, okay, how do I shift this energy into something positive? which was writing a piece of legislation to celebrate his life and not mourn his passing and the way he passed. Like I couldn't, I couldn't face that. Right. Like there's only two ways to grieve and some people take one way and I just take the other way. You know, I take, I mean, when he died, I just, I channeled my energy in more of a positive direction because that was the only way I could cope. Right. You know, <laughs> that's right. Uh, so, you, yeah. you were in fight mode and took a lot of inner strength, but you, you did it. And, I, I really commend you for your efforts so much. It makes me wonder if you were even halfway surprised of, of what happened during your dad's final months and, and days. Or, or, or were you still surprised that it went as far as it did? Well, um, I was never prepared for my father to lose full capacity. By that, I mean that he couldn't have a voice to pick up the phone and call me. Like, I always knew she would just be that way. But nobody is prepared for the fact that one day you're going to wake up and your father can't speak, reach for the phone, can't walk, can't talk. Like, right? So, no. The answer is no. Like, I always assumed my dad would put up a fight, resist her like he always did. He always created boundaries. Like, no, you're not going to do this. Like, I'm going to talk to my daughter and this is what's going to happen. So I was completely caught off guard with the immediacy of just cutting us off totally. 
And, and, and I know, I know what the signs of that are because it's about greed and it's about, it's about, you know, second and third and fourth and Mickey Rooney's kids. So they went through the same thing. It's like, you know, people that have estates, the second, third, fourth, fifth wives, they are, get possessive of their spouse and they worry that, oh God, here come the kids. The kids are coming for the money. Oh boy. Like, no. And I said that in court. I'm like, I, I don't care. And look, the will is the will. Like, there's no changing a will when somebody lacks capacity. Like, hello, that's like probate 101, right? Like, you know, that's just yes. obvious. Like, my sister and I are not going to be trying to finagle the will when my dad has lost complete capacity, has been deemed incapacitated. Now we're at a place of just, hey, can we see our father? You've got all the money that you've worked so hard to shelter from us. So great. Keep that money, but then let us see our father. And it was still like she just it was all about power, control, anger, greed, jealousy. Jealousy was a huge thing. You know, this person did not want my father to have anything to do with his kids and did not like the fact that my father had a had a wonderful relationship with my mom. I mean, best friends. It drove her bananas that my dad was close to my mother. You know, so, you know, they were, I think they're like 25 years apart in age. And I mean, the whole thing was just a mess. And I mean, look, and my father was at fault for it too. My father made some pretty bad choices, you know? And so he lived with those choices, but uh, it, it impacts children a lot. It really does. It's really sad, you know, because we're just children. Like we're just kids. We're just like, you know, <laughs> trying to hang on for dear life, you know, but the, you know what, to be honest with you, there are kids out there that are bad. There are kids out there that are exploitive. You have to really take each case, case by case, right? You know? Absolutely. In your situation, goodness, you just want to see your dad and, you know, and to have powers and, and, and the law and things that are out of your control, at least for a certain period of time. That's just very frustrating and, and unfortunate. But I have to say, your your spirit and your determination to 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 be heard, you, your feelings be heard, and it, Catherine. So you have mentioned some other high profile uh, adult children. Um, you know, of course, Casey Kasem, that situation. But um, you know, you are speaking not just about in case any someone's out there thinking this, you're not just talking about people who are children of actors or people in Hollywood. You mean anybody of, of any walk of life across the country? No, of course. I mean, all of our cases, 99% of our cases are from just average Joe that is absolutely not re- remotely related to any industry at all. But, and our famous cases, our famous names bring a heightened awareness to this advocacy, which helps to bring a spotlight to this because up until when I came into this, it's like all these advocacy groups were spinning their wheels and like, and it's still bigger than I ever expected. And I'm, I'm making very little headway. And I thought I would come in to this advocacy and I would change and do such wonderful things. And it's like, I've hit, you know, lobbyist wall after wall after wall of, you know, big organizations, guardianship organizations that come in and testify against me. And they're on the side of the courts and the, the guardians that are, are, are you know, taking millions of dollars from these states. I'm like, I'm on the right side. Mm. I'm on the side of the ward. It's called the ward. I'm on the side of, like, where my dad was sitting. What is in the best interest of my father? I don't care about me. 
my sister, the wife, the uncle, the gardener. It's like, what is in the best interest of the person that is incapacitated, right? That's true. Right? It's no? also in their best interest, the, the parents. So when I write legislation, I write legislation with only that person as, a, as my focal point. What When we draft this, Everything has to be ward-centered. Everything has to be what is in his or her best interest. Forget about the family members. Draft it that way so that we are on the right side of history and on the right side of the law. So when I go up against major organizations that fight me, you know, they're making money and they're lobbying for, you know, these cottage industry, you know, I mean, it's outrageous. There is so much money that's being made on the backs of elders and elder abuse is just rampant in this country. It is ripe. And it's it, you wouldn't even believe how bad it is in this country. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it, it's, it's so unfortunate. Yeah. It's so unfortunate. Crazy. And um, I'll tell you what, we all got to... We all got to stick together and make sure that uh, we do all we can to, to, to make changes. And, you know, I, I still think there may be some people really caught off by this topic, uh, Catherine, because I think back what you said. Never, ever did you think that you would be prohibited from seeing your dad as he got older. And I'm sure that a lot of people just haven't thought of these things like, OK, we have family issues, but there's no way, you know, something like this could happen. So it's important to be prepared to and to get the word out now, Catherine. Uh, how old was your father when he did pass away? 80, oh boy, I think 83. Yeah, yeah. Early 80s, I think, okay. Um, yeah, I, now, I, I've, lost track of, I've lost track of time at this point, but 83, is it either 81 or 83, could have been 81. Sure. I remember he wanted to live to 85 and he never did, but... Oh, he, he wanted to make it to 85. Well, yeah, that's that a good goal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, but now you died. did not receive a phone call. Is this correct uh, as far as his passing? I did not. No, but the, the, you know that's that, that's the worst part of it is that. Um, oh my! Not only did we not get a call. Uh, this is you're gonna you're not gonna believe this. So not only did we, my sister and I, not get a call about his passing, he was admitted to the hospital. We could not. We were never told that he was in the hospital. We were never told that he died. We heard about his death on the news. And then, and then we didn't know where he was buried. So my sister and I were combing through all of the cemeteries in Los Angeles, trying to find his burial. And then we, you know, we went to the Westwood, um, where you know Marilyn Monroe and all the big names are. We went over there. We saw an empty plot, and we were able to get it out of them that my dad was there, and we saw where he was buried. And uh, then we were not invited to his burial, his funeral at all. So nice. all of those things happened after the fact, yeah. Oh, my. Well, you know, that's just, um, you know, that, that, that's the really just the heartbreaking part of this story. It's just, um, it, you know, if I put myself in your shoes, you know, knowing how much I loved my grandmother, she was in the intensive care for two weeks. And if I couldn't, uh, you know, see her or even, uh, you know, know that she had passed away, in the proper way, it just would have really been devastating for me. And um, mm -hmm. so I have to admire all that you've done. And I would think that your father would be, um, you know, very proud of what you're doing. I just, that's just something I'm feeling right now. Um, so if folks are listening out there, Catherine, and they want to learn more about everything that you have discussed, can you let them know what resources are available? 
Um, yes. Well, I mean, first of all, if they go to the National Association to Stop Guardianship Abuse, it's literally the largest organization in the country that deals with all of these topics that we've discussed. And I've partnered with them and they have a huge reputation and they're not about collecting money. They don't, they don't, you know, they hardly, I mean, they don't even take donations. I mean, they do take donations, but it's so small. And so, but, but you go to their sites and you go to their Facebook page and it's like this live feed and all of the directors and all of the board members, they work with people boots on the ground and they help, they try to help facilitate good outcomes for people. They try to intercede and intervene in ways to help people through this process, you know, and, um, we talk a lot to the media and we, we try to draft as much legislation as possible. Like I'm working right now with federal sponsorship uh, in California so that I'm looking on a federal level that deals with financial exploitation because obviously the feds only get involved when there's money matters and they don't get involved with guardianship and conservatorship because that's left up to the states. So I, there are so many financial exploitive issues. I don't want to get into detail about that, but so we're drafting legislation on a federal level and then, um, you know, I just, yeah, they want to, you know, people want to go to uh, the National Association to Stop Guardianship Abuse and to my website. That's pretty much where you would get information. And also, to be honest with you, it would really, people really need to know that, like, when you're, you need to start having conversations with your family members. Like, these are the possibilities of what can happen. And so what can we do, maybe not to prevent it, but to prepare for this. And a lot of times... I tell people never, ever have a loved one go to the hospital alone because Department of, of the social workers, uh, you know, for elder care, they are combing the aisles in the hospitals. Believe me, I know that sounds completely crazy, but it's true. Um, adult Protective Services, they go through the hospitals, and if somebody is, is alone um, and there's no family member to advocate for them, then uh, they, the hospital and the, um, the uh, adult protective services will get an emergency guardianship order, which takes a couple hours. And, you know, I mean, I've had people have horror stories. You know, they were in a motorcycle accident. They were taken to the hospital. The family was out of reach, out of state. Next thing you know, they're under guardianship, and they're 36 years of age. Um, and so I tell people all the time, knowledge is power. So, you know, you need to never be alone when you go to the hospital. Make sure you have people advocating for you. Make sure that you have your healthcare proxy and all of your paperwork in order and that you've got it on your refrigerator in case you slip and fall, in case something happens, that, you know, all of your paperwork is in order and that you don't just have one successor on your paperwork. You've got like eight, ten people as successors, you know, in your state uh, that will make sure to advocate for you, you know, so that you're not alone in the process, you know. That's right. You're not alone in the process. And I, I certainly hope that you can come back uh, down the road and, and update uh, uh, me and the listeners on, 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 on this situation and the progress and, and share maybe more stories and information. I, I would really appreciate that. And I sure. did uh, want to conclude, though, you know, um, I, I was thinking about, um, you know, just how much I love and, and miss m- my mom. My grandmother raised me, but I always called her mom. Um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, so when you look back, Catherine, obviously this was such a difficult situation, but the happier memories of your dad, was there something in particular that you really, when you think back, that was like the most fun for you when you spent time with your dad? Was it just simply hanging out and talking or did you going out to eat or was there an activity where you're like, wow, that those are some of my most cherished memories with my dad. 
Um, you know, I had so many wonderful memories of my father, but I think it was just being in company with him. And, uh, you know, um, my fondest memories was when I was a teenager and my dad and my mother were best friends. And my dad and my mom, we had season tickets to the LA Kings and, uh, my dad and my mom, who were obviously not married, but they were friends. We would go to the Kings games together and we were all four of us a family and we would go um we after the game we would go in the forum club and have dinner with all the players and then um my dad had a tradition he was <laughs> he was a night owl so he had this <laughs> tradition of wanting to go to larry parker's in beverly hills on wilshire when i was a kid we used to drive from the forum and this is like, again, at midnight, I'm exhausted, but my dad was like, I'm hungry, I'm so hungry. So my dad, <laughs> we would drive to um, Larry Parker's, and we would be sitting in the booth, and I would just watch my mom and dad reminisce about, you know, th- their college life and all of their funny stories of in their youth. And my dad and my mom would just roar with laughter, and they just got such a kick out of each other. And I just, I, I have wonderful memories of the stories my dad would tell. And I can't quite remember all of them, but I just remember watching him and seeing his, um, his charisma and his, his, it was infectious. Like you would sit there and you would laugh. I mean, it's, you know, the old New York, you you know, he was a New Yorker and he was, he just had a, a dry sense of humor and he loved to just laugh and tell stories about himself and tell, you know, it was just, it was great memories of my dad. Yeah. Well, I hope those uh, memories of time spent together, you know, will warm your heart always, Catherine. No, they do. They absolutely keep me going. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate you sharing all that you did today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Send host Stephen Brittingham your comments and questions to Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. That is Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. Stephen looks forward to hearing from you soon.